Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. So with not a a little bit of trepidation, uh, we pick up the letter to the Romans uh, for winter and spring uh, to study. And uh, as I've been reading and rereading and and thinking and preparing, I will confess Uh, that I am both excited and intimidated uh, to begin this book, which might sound kind of silly to you. Being excited and intimidated about a sermon series is a little bit maybe like the pastor being a prima donna, maybe a a little bit dramatic. Uh, But let me, let me illustrate, let me explain. Uh, I can, uh, I can explain by telling a little bit of a story this past October, NPCs, some of NPCs, unofficial, very unofficial, self-sponsored bike riding team went out and uh, participated in a bike race in California. Now, this team, the Brood of Vipers, uh, which was a name given to us by Fred Curry on a bike ride because the pace was a little bit faster than he wanted, uh, referred to us that way. And so the name stuck. You can actually be on the team. Uh, it's that unofficial. Like if you have a bike, if you have a child with a bike, uh, if you don't have a bike, but maybe you play pickleball, you can probably be on our team. It's not an exclusive team. Uh, but some of us went out and we attempted a bike race in California. Uh, And I was super excited uh, to ride in a different state on different terrain until I actually looked at the course because California has something that Ohio doesn't, which are mountains. And there was one mountain on this race and the time holder, uh, the champion of that segment on the race, actually raced in the Tour de France. And so uh, it was crazy. So we trained and we traveled and we looked at the GPS maps and the elevation plans of the race course. And we started the race and the mountain was like in the first 12 miles or so. And we got to the mountain. Um, I, I got to the mountain alone because I was that far behind by then. So I, I you know, I I pedaled and I pedaled some more and I, I, the trail turned into dust and I pedaled and I got off and I walked and I hiked up the, the thing a bit and then I got back on. I pedaled some more. I cried. I went through the stages of grief. <laughs> there was a moment where I was in the bargaining phase and uh, little by little, the top came into view. And I, I'd like to say, and the pictures would actually say that when I got to the top, I was treated to a beautiful view, but I don't remember that. Um, I was just questioning life choices at that moment. And, and I tell that story to say, because it's, it's so possible to be in the moment of something that the big picture can get lost. And Romans, as a book in the New Testament, is like that, I think. Let, let me explain. Uh, it's, it's exciting and it's intimidating. And of Paul's letters, Romans is like one big mountain. Um, I've preached a lot from Romans over the years. I've never preached through it. 
from beginning to end. And I think that for most people, that's our experience with Romans. Like, like we know verses from Romans, we know passages from Romans, but we haven't often considered it in the way that Paul wrote it, which was as a whole. And it's possible to lose the big picture. The theology can be complicated. And also studying Romans doesn't really play to our strengths. Now, I don't mean this to be off-putting because uh, I'm just not trying to be mean this morning. Maybe I will be later. Uh, But, you know, Romans um, builds a lot on the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is not familiar territory for many of us. And that's okay because we'll explain it as we go along. But it also, uh, in order to study it through, you know, consistency helps. And so, coming, you know, coming to church week by week or listening to the messages week by week helps. And we're all going to miss Sundays, and I, I'm going to miss some Sundays, and so that doesn't cater to our strength. But what we learn from Romans is so apt for American Christians in the 21st century that I actually don't think I'd be doing my job well if we didn't look at it at some point. So, I mean, it, it takes up the questions of the moment. Uh, it takes up questions like, what does it mean to be human? It takes up questions about human identity. Uh, it explains to us why we do things that we know we shouldn't do. And it explains to us our frustration in trying to change ourselves. But it also holds out tremendous hope for us. Uh, it, it takes us into the heart of a God who loves us so much that he gives us his son to do all that is required for salvation. And, and so it's just an amazing payoff for individuals and for collective church communities. I mean, Paul will take us into the gospel in a way that will show us that the more a group of Christians understands the gospel, the, 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 more it, the more we understand it with precision, the more motivated we'll be to engage in mission. Now, next week, uh, if you come back after all of that, you're like, I'm not up for mountains. I'm not up for any of it. I'm not coming back. That's okay. Uh, but if you do come back next week, we're going to explain the purpose that Paul wrote Romans for, because he brings those two things together, gospel precision and mission. And he really puts uh, the lie to the theory that churches have to choose between being theologically precise and missional, because that is, that's the main challenge, I think, that the church that Paul writes to is facing, is, is theological precision. They had questions. They were getting some stuff wrong that was causing divisions in their community, which was getting them off mission. Now, that deserves to be explained in detail, and Lord willing, we'll do that next week. But Romans has payoff for not yet Christians as well. So if you're new to the faith, if you're just checking Jesus out, I think you should make it a priority to be here because Paul is going to explain our hearts to us, and he's going to explain our hurts to us, and he's going to show us God's solution, which is beyond anything that we could have come up with on our own. And so it's, it's a hard climb, but it's worth making. And so the best way that I think I can introduce us to the reward for the process is to look into the first seven verses of 
uh, Romans chapter 1, where Paul introduces us to the authority behind the letter, to the agenda of the letter, and to, to really the great object of the letter. So we're going to look at those in turn. First, Paul wants us to see that there is authoritative good news for a wounded world. The question that I imagined someone asking is, why should I commit any time of my life to understanding and applying lessons from this long time ago letter? That's an important question. Why should you invest at all? Why, why will this repay thinking? Well, one way that it's worth it is Paul leaves no stone unturned in explaining why every person needs Jesus. I mean, if, if there are not any moments in this study where you feel uncomfortable, then I'm not doing my job well, or you're not paying attention, or both. Because uh, the first three chapters, Paul makes religious people, and he makes not religious people. And he makes people who might look more liberal, and he makes people who might look more conservative uncomfortable. And he does that intentionally. He is, uh, he is putting human pride on the chopping block. He's like taking a flamethrower to, to everything that any person from any background could be prideful about. From any background, whether you're religious or not religious. And he, he does this in order that we can grasp authoritative good news for this wounded world that we are in. Probably the message about Jesus got to Rome, so the capital city of the empire at that point, kind of the central point of the known world at that point in time. Uh, probably the message got there very simply. Probably ordinary Christians traveled to the capital of the empire and talked about Jesus. So far as we know, uh, it was not a, initially a mission point, but, you know, from Peter or from Paul, from one of the apostles, probably people like you and me became Christians elsewhere and showed up in Rome and talked about Jesus, which is actually pretty inspiring if you think about it, that, that just people living their lives talking about Jesus uh, was used by God to start a collection of churches in the capital city in Rome. And that's something that we can do too. I mean, tomorrow or this afternoon, you can talk about Jesus. And, uh, and that's how the church probably started in Rome. And so Paul planned to visit Rome. He hadn't been to Rome yet. There are already churches in Rome. And so he writes Romans in part to introduce himself to them and to say, I'm going to show up. It's always nice when someone tells you that they're going to show up, right? And that's, that's part of what Romans is about. In verses 1 and 2, he introduces himself, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. And it's interesting that the self-designation servant or slave, it's the word for slave of Christ Jesus, uh, conveys both humility and authority. Commentators point out that in the Old Testament, uh, principal players like Moses and Joshua were described frequently as servants of the Lord. 
servants of Yahweh. Mary, when the angel tells her of her calling to be the bearer of God's sons, responds, I am the servant of the Lord. And so Paul puts himself in that category when God commissions a person for service. It's for service as a servant. We should think about that. In, in case we're pretty enamored with what we're doing for the church. <laughs> that when God commissions someone to be a servant, it's to serve as a servant. All ministry, whether it's vocational, formal, you make your living doing it, or you're a volunteer, all ministry is service. So it's humble, but it's also dignified. Because the dignity of the servant derives from the master who is served. That, that when the servant shows up, the, the dignity of the servant is in whom he or she serves. Moses, servant of the Lord. Joshua, servant of the Lord. Paul, servant of Christ Jesus. And you could think a little bit, we won't explore it much here, but you could think a little bit about what Paul is doing if he's borrowing the expression servant of the Lord and he's inserting the name Christ Jesus into where Lord would go. You could think about whether he's making an intentional connection between the name of Jesus and the personal name of Yahweh from the Old Testament. Christ means Messiah. We've, we've talked about this before. It's not new information for many that Messiah is the long-anticipated king of Israel. Paul says that Jesus of Nazareth, whom he served, is this long-anticipated Jewish king to whom a Roman could be forgiven for responding, who cares? Who cares? I mean, their kings, who they called Caesars, ruled the known world. Why bother with this Jewish king, even if he is a king? Because, I mean, didn't they have troops in Judea? Weren't there legions there? I mean, was their king really a king at all? Who would care? It's, a, it's another good question. Why bother caring about Jesus? Maybe you're not a Christian, and this is exactly your question. Why bother caring about Jesus? It's a fair question. Why should you care? Or maybe you or uh, a friend are among the many in our country who are interested in Jesus, but who are discouraged by Christians. Maybe you're a Christian who sometimes gets discouraged by Christians. I get that. I am that sometimes. Paul speaks into these questions as he describes himself called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Apostle, one of this very small sets of men directly commissioned by Jesus to carry the gospel into the world, invested with his authority to be the, the foundational teachers of the church. There was one generation of apostles. It was a small number. Paul is one of them. By virtue of his uh, direct interaction with Jesus on the Damascus Road when he was converted, called, set apart to be an apostle for the gospel of God. We'll come back to gospel in a moment. But notice that Paul says, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, 
it took me probably some number of years of reading Romans as a younger Christian uh, to realize that the scriptures that Paul was talking about were the Old Testament. And that might seem obvious to you, but the reason why it's worth pointing out is it, it lets us see that the good news about King Jesus fulfills God's promises in the Old Testament to send a Savior who would put right all of the wrongs of the world. Wrongs done by individuals, wrongs done to individuals, global wrongs, system wrongs, all of the ways that the world is a sin-impacted place and a wounded place. God has good news for that world. He has been promising that good news from the beginning pages of Scripture onward. You could walk it all the way back to Genesis 3 and to the first instance of human rebellion and instance of divine judgment and also instance of divine promise that one would come along who would crush Satan Though Satan would wound him, he would crush Satan's head. All the way along, the Bible's been telling this story of promise, Savior coming. Promise, Savior coming. And now Paul says, the moment has arrived. Good news for the world and for the people in it wraps around Jesus of Nazareth, the Jewish king, whom Paul serves on commission from the highest authority, which proposes an answer to the question, why should we commit any time to this? Well, because heaven's authority stands behind it. God's authority stands behind the messenger, that it was God who set apart Paul to be an apostle. It's God who sets apart the message. The good news is God's good news. The good news had been a long time unfolding, thousands of years to that point. But something happened concerning Jesus of Nazareth that brought this good news to the fore. What happened? Well, before we get to that question, I want us to think about this. Sometimes we say, I'm sure I've said it over the years, that we live in an anti-authority age. I, I don't think that's exactly correct on reflection. I, I don't think that we as contemporary Americans are so much anti-authority as much as we are more accurately self-authorizing. For most of us, the most authoritative person in my life is me. And what motivates my use of authority is less a sense of right or wrong or agreed on values, but what motivates me is what makes me happy or sad. Would you generally agree? I, I don't think so much that, that most people are anarchists, like they're anti-authority. I, I think they're self-authorizing, and we authorize our actions based on how we're going to feel, what's, what's going to make us happy or what's going to make us sad. And I'll explain why I think that's important to name in a moment. But Paul says that he has a, a heaven-commissioned servant of the Lord Jesus, the Jewish king, through whom God's good news for the entire world comes. 
So what could be so compelling about this king that Paul subordinates himself and subordinates kind of his own self-authority to Jesus? What could be so compelling? And, and should we do the same thing? We have to ask ourselves that question. I mean, should, should we follow Paul's direction with regard to subordinating ourselves to the authority of King Jesus? And, and you know that I'm going to say that we should, but I need you to think about why. Secondly, and the reason why, is, is there is a compelling king in a rebellious world. We, we know the word gospel. It's a churchy world. You know, gospel is Christianized terminology at this point. But it had existence as a word before Jesus and the New Testament. It was just a, it was just a regular word, gospel. And it could describe a couple of different things. It could describe the reward for a messenger who brought good news. Someone shows up and they have good news and they get a reward. That could be described as gospel. Or it could describe a message about a victory or political good news or private good news. It, it came to describe over time an emperor's birth or an emperor's coming of age, an emperor's enthronement, or actions by the emperor which people hoped would lead to good things. Descendants born, battles won, life improvements, land annexed. Those would all be gospel. Good things done by the king, done in the king's name, gospel. It was a, a secular world word. And so, I mean, unsurprisingly, when Christians understood that Jesus of Nazareth is also the king of kings, they take the word gospel, which is news about a king, and use it to describe good news about the king. So when Paul says that he is set apart for the gospel of God, he's saying something that Romans would have understood. They're used to good news about Caesar. Paul says, I have good news from God, which he promised in the Old Testament, which has now come to fulfillment, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh. So the Jewish king Jesus of Nazareth, whom Paul serves, is at the same time concurrently God's son and a human descendant of Israel's greatest king, David. We're like, we, we understand, we've just been through Christmas. That's what it's about. Paul actually uses the, the very specific Greek word uh, spermatos or sperm to describe that he is a biological descendant from King David. And so you think of how the gospel writers include the genealogies of Jesus in their run-ups, you know, in, in Matthew and in Luke. They're very interested in showing this human lineage. Now we are at the cusp of divine mystery here that the eternally preexistent Son of God, second person of the Trinity, had in his human nature an origin point, descended from King David. And that Jesus of Nazareth in this way 
fulfills God's promise to David that David would have a descendant who would reign forever. Now, this promise is throughout the Old Testament. I just picked one uh, description of it from Psalm 89, where it says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So long before Jesus of Nazareth came onto the scene... There was a promise to King David that he would have a descendant who would rule forever. And Paul writes to the Romans, he says, this fulfiller of the promise is Jesus of Nazareth. And this coming one is the subject of so much Old Testament anticipation. Again, uh, it is the theme of so much of the Old Testament. But for instance, from Ezekiel and 34, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. And by David, he means David's descendant. So a first century Roman or a 21st century American could be rightly skeptical. Okay, you're saying these things about Jesus. But what's so compelling about Jesus? Because anybody can say anything about anybody. Well, verse 4, Paul says, was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Any person can make outlandish claims to be special persons on special missions from God. I, I, I would presume that healthcare clinics across the world and across time are, are housing some folks who claim to be special people on special missions from God. But what if God declared that a person was on a special mission from Him? How would you know? Well, the declarer Paul talks about is God. And the means of the declaration is the resurrection. Ever before King Jesus is proclaimed by the church to be the Son of God, God declares Jesus to be the Son of God by His resurrection. Now, don't make the, the theological mistake of, of believing that Jesus became the Son of God at some point in time. That's not what Paul is saying. Uh, Jesus is always the Son of God. But what, point, what is pointed out, like if you're a Bible verse underliner, uh, the, the part of the verse that you want to underline in verse 4 uh, is the in power part, that, that He was declared to be the Son of God in power. He was declared to be the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. In other words, and to paraphrase, God the Son incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Jewish King, died a necessary death on behalf of His people. That this self-sacrifice was accepted by God is proven by His resurrection. After his resurrection, the king comes in to new power. He's raised in power. So, so what 
is compelling in this particular instance. Of course, there's so much about Jesus that is compelling, but what is compelling in this particular point with regard to our question, you know, why do Jesus of Nazareth's claim matter? It's the resurrection. And, and if you're skeptical about Jesus, and if you're skeptical about the claims of Christianity, then I would encourage you to give the account of the resurrection a hard think. Because there was a moment in time when the men and women who lived most closely with Jesus and were most inclined to believe in Jesus ran away from him. And that was the moment when he died. And there was a moment in time on a Friday outside of Jerusalem where people thought that the entire Jesus project had come to a grinding halt and, and was mission failure. And, and the, the, the folks who hung around with Jesus, most of them were running for their lives. They, they found a little room to lock themselves up in and, and hope that the Romans wouldn't show up or that the, the Jewish police wouldn't show up. So they're, they're running for their lives. And the, the question that you have to think through is what happened between the moment that they're running for their lives and all of them traveling throughout the known world at risk of life and limb, having said goodbye to their old life in order to tell people about Jesus of Nazareth. Because if something didn't happen, all they would really be doing would be promulgating an obituary. Let me tell you about a guy who died. And actually, a lot of world religions are kind of built that way. But they're traveling around and they're saying, let me tell you the story, a report, if you will, about a guy who died and then wasn't dead. And what does his not deadness mean? Well, his not deadness means that God vindicated him, that he actually did achieve the mission for which he was sent. That in his living and in his dying and in his rising, he was declared and vindicated and proven to be the Son of God. And now he is the Son of God in power. Well, what does the empower part refer to? Well, the empower part refers to what we would call his ascension and his enthronement. That right now, even today, the Son of God declared such in power is ascended to the right hand of God the Father from where he rules right now. And from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. So, so the in power part means that through his resurrection and through his ascension, he enters into what, what the theologians would call kind of a new phrase of redemptive history. That, that he is now defending his church. He is now declaring the sins of his people forgiven. He is now answering Satan's accusation that we're not worthy to be saved. And he's answering it with reference to his own death and resurrection, not to our performance, which is what the rest of Romans will make clear. So this is the compelling king that the world needs to know about. And this is the compelling king before whose authority we all must bow and before whom Paul subordinates his agenda and his authority. And we need to as well. And, and you really need to underline that part because, again, the, the next sections of Revelation 
are just probably going to make some of you mad. It's okay. He, Paul, Paul is going to critique all manner of human behavior. And th- there will be something in Romans that will make you think, well, where does he get off writing this? Doesn't he know? We have to walk it back to the resurrection. So if Jesus is raised, if his message comes with heavenly authority, then then he's authoritative over me. Oftentimes we like to read the Bible this way. I'm authoritative over the Bible. And I I come to parts that that I wouldn't naturally agree with. And so I'm going to come up with some ways to critique those. But if the resurrection is true, the resurrection is critiquing us. The resurrection is critiquing us by saying that that we're so lost (laughs) that it takes the son's death and resurrection to save us. So you have to tuck that away. And I think you'll find it compelling. Because thirdly, what it reveals is a, a loving agenda in a fractured world. Now, I know most of you love to receive criticism. <laughs> you, you, you probably can't wait for the next time that someone close in your life sits down and says, you know what, I, I, I think we need to talk. <laughs> and you think, well, I'm really looking forward to what you're about to point out to me. We all love to receive criticism. Of course we don't. But there are people from whom we will receive some criticism, and those are the people who we know have our best interest at heart. You know, that, that if your loved one sits down with you and says, you know, I really don't think you should ride your bike up mountains in California anymore. <laughs> you might say, well, that's not, it's not fun to hear. That means someone else is going to have to finish last next year. But when the critique comes from a place of love, we're glad to hear it. So it's not throwaway language in verses 5 to 7, where Paul says that God's agenda through the promise-fulfilling work of His Son is born out of love. What is God's agenda? God's agenda, the reason that Paul is an apostle, is summarized in verses 5 to 7. Through whom... We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we can think that these introductions are just kind of flowery push starts into the really important stuff that comes along, but this is of the really important stuff. Paul is saying to the Romans and us that that we're loved by God, that the church is loved by God, that love foregrounds the Father's agenda. That love is not just part of the Father's agenda. The, The Father's agenda is to love this broken world. And it motivates the Son's mission, and it motivates the Father's call for us to be holy. And we need to keep this in mind for the places where Romans pushes into us where beliefs and behaviors need challenged, remember, it's foregrounded in love. So so love is the motivation and the agenda is global to bring about the obedience of faith 
for the sake of his name among all the nations. So faith and obedience are two sides of the coin here. The, the commentators put it this way, faith is regarded as an act of obedience, of commitment to the gospel of Christ. But the commitment is of wholehearted devotion to Christ. Or it's true to say that we make a decision of faith as an act of obedience towards God, and also that true faith by its very nature includes in itself the sincere desire and will to obey God. So, so it's more than just intellectual agreement. And it includes intellectual agreement, but it's more than intellectual agreement. It's more than an emotional experience. It might include an emotional experience, but it also includes action. It includes obedience. God says it. I believe it. The believing means I do it. And where is this agenda played out? For the sake of his name among all the nations. So Paul is commissioned by God to be the apostle to the nations, to the Gentiles, so that the name of the king who reigns is made famous everywhere. Now, this is one place where I, I really stopped to think much about it this week. And, and here's what I want you to think about just in conclusion, and it's a good way to prepare to come to the Lord's table. We often talk about the benefits of believing in Jesus. And there are many benefits to believe in Jesus. We can make a long list of them, forgiveness, righteousness with God, adoption into his family, being changed by him, a, a future to look forward to, glory to come into. Many, many benefits. And Paul will describe many of them in Romans. But before he gets to the benefits, he reminds us that the gospel is about Jesus' name. It's for the sake of his name. That, that the, the gospel is not principally a transaction to make you great or principally a transaction to make me great. We accrue benefits, but the greatness is Jesus's. And the gospel is about making Jesus great among the nations. As hopeful as the gospel is to us, the final outcome of the gospel is not principally the happiness of Dave, but it's the fame of Jesus. And that should humble us. And it should amaze us that, that my happiness and your happiness get caught up in what makes him famous. That, that, that they're not in opposition to each other, but, but the more famous Jesus is made among the nations, as the church engages in mission and proclaims them, and as men and women and girls and boys come to understand that the king who died is also risen and that we can be forgiven and brought into his family, as wonderful as that is for us, the more famous it makes Jesus, the more the mission is accomplished. We need to keep that perspective for us because it keeps us from becoming the center of the story. The king is the center of the story. What the king tells us to believe, we accept. Where the king tells us to obey, we obey. Where the king challenges the prevalent views of our world, we listen. Now, next week, Lord willing, we'll take up the rest of chapter 1 
and head into the question, why did Paul write this letter in the first place? And why did this Christians and us need Romans? But for this morning, authoritative good news for a wounded world, a compelling king in a rebellious world, and a loving agenda for a fractured world. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast. And for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.